Well, thank you, Nathan and the worship team. We are tremendously spoiled here. Emmanuel Baptist is a plethora of riches. <clears throat> and what an enjoyable way to prepare as we get ready to receive the word. Well, the last two times that I preached at this church, I had less than 36 hours to prepare. And so I, I somewhat appreciated that Patrick gave me a heads up two weeks early, and then I soon realized, no, maybe it's better that I don't know until the last minute because of nerves. Unless you all think that I can only preach from the Psalms, I want to actually invite us to turn with me to the New Testament. Uh, more specifically, come with me into the third chapter of the book of James. As you're turning there, do we have anyone here this morning that enjoys the act of people watching? Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, we have other words for it. Lurker, creeper. <laughs> I love people watching. I enjoy uh, just watching people exist and move and do what people often do. I'll often find myself just stopping to admire the people around me. It, it always seems to happen at airports, right? And you just stop and kind of take it all in or a mall shopping centers. As, as we uh, prepare for Black Friday, maybe the best thing we could do is just do some people watching, save a couple dollars. But when it comes to people watching, one of my absolute favorite places to do it at, funny enough, is the gym. Uh, at the gym, I, I go to the YMCA, I, I used to a lot, and then COVID hit, at least that's the excuse I'm using. And at the gym, you have a wide variety of people all there in the hopes of getting healthy or staying healthy. And in certain rooms, particularly the weight room, you have all these different pieces of equipment, each of them designed to focus upon different muscle groups. And it's particularly humorous to watch some people who have no clue what they're doing as they pick it up and they think, they think it should be used this way and I just sit there and watch and kind of chuckle. And uh, I'm sure they watch me as well as I attempt to not make a fool of myself. I, I, I confess that because the whole thing actually leaves me wondering this. For all the muscles that we can focus on and train and develop, what's the strongest muscle in the human body? Is it the quads? Is it the glutes? Uh, confession, I had to Google those to, to find out what I was even talking about. I didn't want to refer to something inappropriate. Is it the biceps? Is it a left bicep or a right bicep? What is it? Is it the, the jaw? Is it the heart? Well, as we discover in our passage for this morning, according to James, the half-brother of Jesus, the strongest muscle that we possess as human beings is without a doubt the tongue. When we consider the sheer power that is demonstrated in our words and our speech, both for good and for evil, to heal and to harm, well, our tongues essentially require no strength training. They have been and always will be remarkably strong. 
and at times, unfortunately, very sharp. Throughout his letter, which is addressed to Jewish Christians dispersed throughout the region at that time, James discusses at length the practical application of God's word to the various aspects of life. So much so that some commentators refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it seems that James would have gleaned from both the Old Testament book of Proverbs, as well as the teachings of Christ, his half-brother, as recorded in the New Testament. And, and as he draws from both sources, both the Old and the New Testament, James is actually writing to, quote, beloved brothers. He'll use that phrase 15 different times. And, and we could include in their beloved sisters, in the Lord. And he writes to them about things like wisdom and obedience and integrity, uh, what he'll call wholeness in the Christian life. And in the opening to his letter, James actually expresses his hope for his readers that they and we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James wants each of us to be maturing believers, and, and I think that most of us want that for ourselves as well. Not to be the sort of person that James will actually describe chapter 1 verse 8 as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And as it turns out, that begins with the tongue. All throughout his letter, James deals with the practical examples of both right and wrong speech. Every chapter touches upon the issue ranging from the sin of partiality to the sin of hypocrisy in speech. Boasting about our plans and our future. But it's here in our text, James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, that James actually stops and he does some people watching. And he holds the magnifying glass, as it were, not just to all of us, but more specifically to our tongues. And he does so, so that we might consider and examine in great depths some of its distinct qualities. And in so doing, I believe that James helps us to feel in very vivid ways the true weight of our words as Christians. And so if you are able to, let me invite us to stand for the reading of our text, James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. James writes this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and 
sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would soften our hearts. Pray that you'd open our ears and our eyes so that we might see these truths as never before. Lord, we pray that you would admonish us, encourage us, even rebuke us, Lord, if we need that this morning. You know us better than we know ourselves, and so we pray that you would do your wondrous divine work within us, Lord, so that you might get all the glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So James highlights four distinct qualities of the human tongue. Four qualities of the tongue. Number one, its distinct nature. Number two, its directional nature. Number three, its destructive nature. And number four, its duplicitous nature. Let's begin with number one, the distinct nature of the tongue. And and James actually begins this portion of his letter with a very strange warning. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. In James's day, roughly about 40 to 50 BC, uh, people often felt the very urge that James is identifying here. They felt the urge to try and take the more visible roles of leadership, even within the early Christian church. Strangely enough, that tendency still, that tendency still exists within the church today. There's a sort of draw maybe a human draw, an appeal to being the guy up front. And the kind of teacher that James is alluding to here is one who serves within the body of Christ and instructing brothers and sisters in the Lord. And again, the attraction, the reason James has to say, don't rush into that, is because there is an attraction. Namely, the attraction to have others listen to what you have to say. Jesus addressed this very thing in Matthew 23 as he delivered seven strong, very sharp woes to religious teachers. Where in verse 5 he says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts. And the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They love that stuff. And that's why there's even a draw today. Men rushing in, getting behind a pulpit, getting behind a mic so that they might draw a crowd. So that they might at at some minute level, and you'd never see it, but at some level, think, wow, these people care what I have to say. And why the warning? Well, reason number one, James says, middle of verse one, for you know that... We who teach, and and the implication there is teach through the tongue, 
through the use of their speech, we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that warning really applies twofold. There's a greater strictness both in this life as well as the life to come. Men and women, such preachers and teachers as James knew full well will ultimately be judged by a higher standard because it's they who bear a greater responsibility. With great authority comes great responsibility. And every time a pastor or teacher stands to explain the scriptures, as Patrick does, as I attempt to do this morning, every time that occurs, that man who stands there before you willingly invites judgment upon himself. And so in a sense, James is saying, you best be called by the Lord. You best not be there because you want to be there. You best be there because the Lord has called you to be there. That's the first reason, the first uh, reason for the warning. But the second comes in verse 2. Reason number two for James's warning, he says, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And here James now broadens the scope from teachers to now teachers and non-teachers, to everyone. And never have truer words been spoken about the human condition. We all stumble in many ways. 1 Kings 8 verse 46 says, There's no one who does not sin. In Romans 3.23, we could recite it from memory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stumble. And, and, and just to clarify, James is not making excuses for sin, sinful speech. It's not like he's saying, well, we all make mistakes. I mean, come on, it's, it's really no big deal. Let's just give each other a pass. It's not like he would echo the refrain that oftentimes occurs when a believer will use profanity. Well, we know that we're Christians, <laughs> Now, when he uses this word stumble, he's, he's speaking of something greater, something far more offensive. It, it means just that, to, to offend or, or to fall. And, and James will actually use that same term. He used it back in chapter 2, verse 10, to describe the violating and breaking of God's law. James is acknowledging the fact that every one of us sins in a wide variety of ways, not the least of which includes the way we speak. And women, this is a direct denial of the idea of sinless perfection in the Christian life. If you're here this morning and you think you're without sin, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you're a liar. We all stumble. Even the guy who stands behind a pulpit. And that's the very reason why the prophet Isaiah cried out before the Lord in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Incidentally, this is why also I personally feel very anxious, very nervous every time I prepare to preach. I was telling my boy this morning, you'd think after 20 years of doing this that it would just kind of you fall into a rhythm but the truth of the matter is I know myself and many of you know me and I'm well aware of my propensity to say some of the worst things at the worst times that's part of the gift 
It also times can be used for something that's not so good. I know I have the ability to to say something positive in a somewhat memorable way, just as I know that I am absolutely the king of sarcasm. (laughs) And I don't have to sit there and think about what I'm going to say. I just say it and forget the consequences. Despite my best intentions, I often demonstrate my deserving the title of Mr. Inappropriate. Can anyone else here relate? We all stumble. In fact, James will offer this sort of hypothetical scenario in the middle of verse 2. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. Men, women, listen. There's, there's few sins that people commit in which the tongue is not somehow involved. Gossip, lying, petty slander, profanity, anger, blasphemy, arrogance, and... Well, you can continue the list. To some degree, the mouth is always somehow employed for sinful gain. Nevertheless, it, it's, it proves James's point regarding the centrality of the human tongue and the Christian life. We have a lot of members, but none of them has the ability to do great things as well as do awful things like the tongue does. It stands out very clearly, very distinctly from the rest of the members of our body. The second nature. James actually continues in his letter by alluding to the tongue's potential for good. This is one side of the scale. Number two, the directional nature of the tongue. Look at verse three. James says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. I suddenly have flashbacks to riding Saddleback on, uh, on Cannon Beach and watching one of my siblings fall off the horse and, and being very nervous as I sat up there and thought, wow, if this horse wanted to do something, I guess I'm along for the ride. And the only hope I had was these two reins and the hope that he's going to respond as I pull left or pull right. And this is the first of James's many illustrations in this passage. And he offers it because he wants us to consider, what he wants us to consider is the small size of that which makes the greatest difference. In fact, he'll follow it up with a second illustration, verse 4. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the, wherever the will of the pilot directs. You know, it's, it's amazing as you consider how little it takes to, to change the direction of even the mightiest seafaring vessels. Some of these boats that we encounter out on the water, I, I remember standing on the deck of one over in Virginia with, with Kelly in Virginia Beach. And some of these boats are, are massive. They're like 10 to 15 football fields long and, and hundreds of feet tall and hundreds of feet wide and And yet the actual object that determines which way it will go is surprisingly minuscule in comparison. And in both these illustrations, the incredible influence that each item possesses, both the bit for the horse as well as the rudder for the ship, that's in no way determined by its size. It's not because it's massive and 
And James says, verse 5, so also, in the same way, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. That phrase could actually be translated as it, it makes great claims. James is, seems to use that phrase as in a neutral way. It isn't, he isn't necessarily speaking of the tongue as being used in an arrogant manner, at least not in this verse. Rather, James is highlighting how we can use one of the most seemingly insignificant parts of our bodies, this, this small piece of flesh, our tongues, to draw the strongest responses out of men and women and to stir up their deepest desires and emotions. I mean, just think of some of the greatest orations in human history or even some of your favorite speeches and your most cherished books or movies. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I mean, who writes a line like that? Who speaks like that? And what James is identifying here is the ability to steer our listeners away from bad elements or decisions, as well as redirect them towards that which is good and noble. And therein lies one of the great capacities, one of the greatest benefits of the tongue. This is one of the many profound contrasts that James presents to his readers in his letter. But with that being said, just because something can be used for good doesn't mean that it can't also be misused or exploited. That brings us to point number three, the destructive nature of the tongue. The destructive nature. James will go on to contrast the tongue's potential for good with its potential for evil. And, and here he'll employ another illustration. Look in the middle of verse 5. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I'll never forget it. My teen years, that one fourth of July, with, when my buddy and I came up with the brilliant idea to shoot Roman candles at one another. <laughs> Please, Brady, if you're listening to this, don't do this. But I remember that evening, our neighbors later came to warn us that, incidentally, a small patch of our forest was now in fire. And I quickly wanted to run and go hide the Roman candles like any kid would do. But I'll never forget that. I'll always remember that, that burned out little section simply by one little fireball. You know, one doesn't have to hit a wooded area with napalm to try and burn it all down. Some of the largest forest fires have begun with simply a discarded cigarette or a wandering ember from a camp fire pit. Thousands of acres all gone up in smoke and flames all because of one little spark. And employing that illustration, James then makes the application in verse 6 by saying this, and the tongue is a fire. Yes, our tongue can be used for good, but there's also an incendiary nature when it comes to our sinful speech. Our words can build up, but let us never forget they can also destroy. Even the speech of the sincerest believer can at times do some of the most horrendous damage, both to themselves in terms of their testimony, as well as to others. And women, we're, we all stumble in many ways. And here James says more specifically, more vividly, we're all capable of being verbal fire starters. Again, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're in any way exempt from what James is talking about here. If you have a tongue, 
which I don't need to take a poll. I'm going to just assume all of us here has a tongue. But if you have a tongue, you possess within you, at this very moment, one of the greatest weapons of mass destruction known to mankind. And I mean that. Throughout history, people have created a legacy and a vision for themselves and for others to follow throughout generations simply by what they said. And many times for good, but at the same time, throughout history, that same history, people have made absolute shipwrecks of their lives and have destroyed themselves and everyone around them simply by the way they use their tongue. James goes on to say in verse 6, so that we understand the, the depth of our despair with regards to the misuse of our tongue. He says, middle of verse 6, it's a, a, a world, an entire realm of unrighteousness. You know, for every good and righteous thing that we could possibly say to another person, which includes a wide variety, a wide array of words and phrases, there exists its evil and wicked counterpart. Right? I love you. I hate you. You're the best. You are the worst. You are seriously awesome. You are seriously awful. Right? You get what I'm saying? I love being around you. I, I cannot stand you. I'm so glad you're a part of my life. You know, I wish I never met you. All from the same tongue. And when it comes to potential misuses of our tongues, James is saying that there's an entire universe of possibilities. The options are limitless. He goes on to say, again, verse 6, the tongue is set among our members. It's one part of a greater whole, and, and every limb, all of it's been impacted by the fall of man. Yet the tongue still stands as one of the great troublemakers that we possess as human beings. It's one weapon within our entire arsenal as sinful creatures. And without a doubt, it's the greatest, the most devastating of the bunch. I guess one could almost say when it comes down to it, the tongue is kind of the black sheep of the family. James goes on again, verse 6, it, it stains the whole body. This Greek word for stain, uh, spilao, means to defile or, or to to spoil. Imagine a, a bottle of black ink spilled on a gorgeous white linen and you get the picture. That's essentially what a sin-filled tongue does in the context of the entire human body. He goes on again, verse 6, setting on fire the entire course or literally the circle of life. I mean, just think of the path of your life stretching from your birth all the way to your death. And James says, in a sense, the, that entire path can be left smoldering because of all the chaos that your tongue has produced. Absolute scorched earth. In other words, James is saying a tongue that's not harnessed or controlled eventually leads to a life that's completely out of control. He goes on. And is itself set on fire. It's, it's ignited. It's inflamed by hell. Uh, literally, the, the word is Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place in the valley of Jerusalem, which was often used by Jesus to symbolize the future destruction of the wicked. And James says that that is in part the actual cause for all of the damage that's done in our sinful speech. It's hell. <laughs> in some small way, we offer a 
sort of foretaste of the destruction that is to come every time we choose to employ our tongues in a sinful manner. As you take all those different images as a whole, apart from the grace of God, everything that James describes here in verse 6 is ultimately our default as fallen sinful human beings when it comes to our speech. In fact, to emphasize his point as if it even needed it, verse 7, he says, For every kind, every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. I mean, think of all the different members of the animal kingdom that can be controlled and have been taught to behave in a particular manner. Dogs, horses, gorillas, parrots, eagles, whales, dolphins, you name it. All controlled, all tamed, all taught to act in a particular manner. And then James adds this point, middle of verse 8, and no, but no human being can tame the tongue. This is an existing reality that is true today as it was back in the garden during the events of Genesis 3. And what James wants us to know is that apart from the sovereign intervening grace of God on our behalf as his people, this principle holds true for all people at all times, in all circumstances and situations. James says we can, we can tame pretty much anything and everything within creation, except we can't tame ourselves. We can't tame our tongues. He says, verse 8, it's, it's a restless or unstable evil, like a, like a lion or a bear hiding behind our teeth that, that can't be tamed or domesticated. Men and women, our, our tongues prove to be so volatile and so unpredictable at times, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. In fact, I oftentimes find introverts to be more terrifying because the less they say, the more their words have an impact. People like me, extroverts, I'll just talk all day. But those introverts, they can be verbal snipers. (laughs) And James says it's full of deadly poison, right? All of these images, so vivid. But James employs them to show us that we are fully capable of, of doing some of the worst damage. We can spit verbal venom all day long. And when left unchecked and unrestrained, our tongues are nothing less than potentially murderous. You know, the contrast between the constructive images of verses 3 through 5 and the destructive images of verses 5 through 8 is absolutely striking. I mean, two radically different realities, both of which can be and often are demonstrated in the use of our speech. What a picture, James 3. And from James's perspective, the tongue seems to represent everything that's wicked and depraved about fallen humanity. We can do such great things with the words we speak. And we can offer such life. And yet we can turn around and just suck the life out of somebody. And hit them right where we know it's going to hurt. And we can offer those stingers. James brings us to the fourth point, beginning in verse 9, the duplicitous nature of the tongue. And this is where he pulls no punches. He says, verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, the tongue, we, 
we curse, we wish evil upon people who are made in the likeness of God. In other words, James says, with our tongues, we'll gladly exalt the king of heaven like we've done this morning. But with those same tongues, we will in one way or another essentially condemn people to hell. With our tongue, we'll sing, I love you, Lord. And with that same tongue later, maybe even that same day, we'll shout at a fellow image bearer, I hate you. Like verbal jekylls and hides, all of us regularly demonstrate both ends of the spectrum when it comes to how we express ourselves. And even if we are somehow able to keep our rudest comments to ourselves, the truth is it still enters into our minds. And for the rest of us, some of us can even be so bold as to try and justify such hypocritical behavior by following it up with a disclaimer, well, that's just me. That's just the way I am. That's just who I am. Somebody who speaks my mind and says what everybody else is thinking. As if we should say, well, thank you so much. What an incredible service you offer us. And for emphasis, James repeats for his listeners what he had just said. Verse 10, from the same Mouth. He doesn't want us to miss the point. The same mouth come blessing and cursing. It's, he's not talking about two separate people here. We aren't talking about conjoined twins with two separate mouths. No, these are, these are two simultaneous possibilities which when found together demonstrate the greatest inconsistency in all of mankind. And then James, I believe as a very in a pastoral moment says, middle of verse 10, my brothers, can you hear the appeal? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And women, James is telling us in no uncertain terms, this is certainly how it is, but this is not how it should be. In other words, there's a, there's a glaring inconsistency here in terms of this part of our everyday behaviors as Christians. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. In verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you. That is part of your life, but that's part of your past life. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Have you seen those t-shirts, those bumper stickers that read essentially this? I love Jesus, but I curse a little. Have you seen that? James says that's not okay. That's not something you should be flaunting. That's something you should be embarrassed about. I mean, it's for good reason that so much of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, addresses the tongue when it comes to the issue of right and holy living. I mean, just listen to this sample. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Jesus, in the, Old in the New Testament, his own words in Matthew 15, verse 7 and 8, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Paul, in Ephesians 4.29, where he says, let no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Men and women, sins of the tongue are some of the hardest to avoid, and yet they do some of the most lasting damage upon others. And that's the interpretation, I believe, of that text. Let's talk about application. And here I'm going to go from preaching, I guess, to meddling. James is so practical in his letter when it comes to the use of our tongues. And because so, I want to be just as practical this morning when it comes to one of the clearest points of application with regards to these truths. If you'll allow me, two very clear, distinct points of application. In saying what I'm going to say, I'm inevitably going to offend somebody. And I've had to come to peace with that. That's okay. Because I'm not up here because I need the kudos or my ego stroked. I'm not ultimately here to please you or myself for that matter. That being said, and women, I believe this text of scripture has incredible pertinence to how we treat one another amidst our varying points of view, not the least of which is our contrasting opinions and beliefs about COVID-19 and the ensuing vaccine. I say this as humbly, as graciously as I can, if you don't know my heart, you're going to have to extend me some faith on this. But I mean this when I say this. That never in my lifetime have I ever witnessed so many brothers and sisters in the Lord turn absolutely toxic in the use of their tongues as they speak to and about others who just so happen to disagree with them about that matter. And they'll essentially elevate whether or not somebody has been vaccinated above and beyond the deeper and far more pressing issue of whether or not they know Jesus Christ. And closely related to this matter is another point of application. Something I personally find even more horrifying as a believer. And that's the more recent use. And let me be very clear, I'm talking about supposed believers, the more recent use of this phrase, let's go Brandon. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to give you permission to just let this portion of the sermon just pass right over your head. But if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm alluding to, please hear me clearly when I say this, that it is absolutely unbecoming of a Christian to use that vulgar euphemism or any vulgar euphemism to disparage or curse the very man whom God explicitly calls us to pray for. If you've been doing that, stop it, please. Please stop it. I see people get on the internet and flaunt that. Let's go, Brandon. As if that's okay, as if we don't know what they mean by that. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, or in our case, the president, no matter how evil or corrupt he might be. One commentator writes this with regards to both those issues. He says this, in America, we cherish freedom of speech, but with freedom comes responsibility. Responsible citizens in a democracy and Christians in any form of society must learn what is helpful and even necessary to say, even when unpleasant, and what remains only destructive. He says evangelical Christians have at times had such a poor track record of speaking the truth in love in situations such as these, even as more liberal Christians have often failed to speak the truth in love. Men and women, in light of what we've just considered this morning, such behavior has absolutely no place among the body of Christ. And yet James acknowledges it still does. So why? Why? That's the million dollar question. Often after spewing out something off-colored or barbed or just generally inappropriate, we'll quickly find ourselves, say to ourselves, how in the world could I have said that? Right? Right? What is it within me, that within us, that enables us to, to craft the perfect zinger, the most cutting word or phrase at just the right moment? The answer, the heart. The heart. The heart is the real culprit. Because that is precisely what happens to be in your heart. That's why you say that. All that essentially happens is like a pitcher that's filled to the top. Something or someone comes along and bumps you and the contents just come spilling out. I'll often kid myself by saying, wow, that, that came out of nowhere. No, it came out of your heart. And for good reason, Jesus says in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. That's a frightening thing to realize, particularly for those of us who've been walking with the Lord for so long that there still remains evidences of the fall within us in terms of the way we speak. In fact, Jesus continues in that same passage, Matthew 12, by warning us. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That is one of those verses that terrifies me because I know my track record. Yeah, but Lord, I, I said this on Sunday. Yeah, but you said this on Monday and Tuesday. Jesus says, by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. I mean, it's no wonder our mothers told us as kids, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Think before you speak, sweetie. I mean, I, I remember one of my mom's friends saying to us as kids, why don't you just sit there and be seen and not heard? I think there's something good about that at times. There's times where we have to put ourselves in a timeout because we know I might say the wrong thing and, and I don't want to do that. Not because of how it might just impact me, but the way it'll poorly reflect upon Christ. James concludes this section of his letter with two rhetorical questions. Look at verse 11. 
He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? As a rhetorical question, the answer is obviously no, of course not. Right? A, a, a product, so to speak, it's always consistent with its original source. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Of course not, right? Luke 6.44, each tree is known by its own fruit. And this is one of these laws of nature that every element of creation ultimately remains true to its unique nature. And James concludes by saying, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I think what he means there is the salt pond being our heart it can't yield fresh water in terms of our speech. Again, it's not ultimately a tongue issue. It's a heart issue. And what comes out of the heart proceeds, or what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's that which defiles a person. In closing, James highlights the reality that right speech is one of the most basic marks of genuine Christian maturity. But with that being said, our words have had a way, they do have a way, they will have a way of getting us into a world of trouble. And if you have the gift of speech, you're doubly in trouble, I guess. But this passage is such a vivid reminder that we are without a question all sinners and that we desperately need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. And that even beyond our initial conversion, we as Christians must remain daily and completely dependent upon God's spirit to change our speech and even more broadly change our lives. Paul says, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. I believe this text to be one of the best diagnoses given by God in his word of the full potential and true power of our tongues as fallen human beings. James wants us to be mature. And so he seeks to instruct us as Christians on how our speech ought to adorn rather than contradict our profession of faith. And having considered this honest assessment of our tongues, having looked intently, to borrow James's words, at ourselves in the mirror of God's word, We'd be absolute fools to just go away and at once forget what we're like. James wants us to feel the power, the potential, and yes, at times, the crushing weight of our words. He wants us to be aware, painfully aware, of the ticking time bomb that lives behind our teeth. What is more, James wants us to reckon with the fact that our tongues are like that, but one day, by the grace of God, they will not be. And so we can either choose to control our tongues or we can allow our tongues to control us and ultimately dictate the trajectory of our lives. Can I offer you a word of hope and encouragement? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as bad as things might get in terms of James's diagnosis, that's not the end of the story if you are indeed in Christ.
Paul so confidently can say in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, I personally can't wait to be free from this body with this tongue, a mouth that at times can pour verbal rot rather than the righteousness it should. I can't wait for the day when I, will, I won't have to keep a tight rein on my tongue, but instead my lips, our lips as believers, will forever echo the refrain of the angels in heaven, all of whom declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you long for that day? Trust that you do. So until that day comes, may we be found continually throwing ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord in prayer, asking that he would help us to see, to use the stewardship of our tongues and our lips, not just for the highest good of our fellow image bearers, but also for the glory of his great kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, I, I don't fully understand what you do in the act of preaching and why you would choose to use the words of a feeble, fallen man to proclaim your truth. And yet, Lord, by faith, I believe that. And by faith, I believe that you are changing our mouths. You are changing our lips. And mouths that once were profane are now becoming lips filled with praise. And only you can do that, Lord. Please don't let anything I've said sound like a push towards moralism or trying to get our spiritual act together by ourselves. No, we need you. We need you to change our vocabulary. And Lord, we need you to change our hearts. Thank God you have promised to do that, to give us new hearts. And with that comes new songs, new phrases, and new words of praise, Lord. Thank you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.